0: Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi,
1: Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we take people's questions. Maybe there's a text of Scripture you've been studying or uh, there's a challenge in your life or family or ministry and you'd like biblical counsel. Whatever it might be, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will attempt to be. All you need to do, again, is pick up the phone locally. It's uh, 843-525-1859. If you want to use the toll-free exchange, we have people in other parts of the country that listen. Uh, It's 877-WAGP980. Or you can text us here directly into the studio and that address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you do call the studio at 843-525-1859, you can dictate your question, or if you like, um, you can go on the air live and we do give priority to live callers. So with that said, Rick, let's jump in with both feet and get started.
0: All right. Saul from Greenville writes, where in Scripture does it affirm that there are no prophets after Christ's ascension?
1: Well, it technically it doesn't say after Christ's ascension, and then we are dealing with the issue of what we mean by a prophet. Um, the The use of uh, the, the office of prophet had two dimensions in the Old Testament, both of foretelling and foretelling. Foretelling would be making some predictive statement concerning the future. And of course, if a man was a prophet of God, based on what Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 18, he would have to be able to give not just some long-term prophecy that you could never potentially verify because it's hundreds of years in the future, Uh, For instance, Micah the prophet, Micah 6, uh, predicted that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Well, that's wonderful because uh, he lives hundreds of years before Christ, and he would have been dead for uh, four centuries plus, five centuries, uh, before it actually came true. So uh, how could you really tell if a man of God was really a man of God? Well, the only way you could tell would be his short-term prophecies. And so Moses writes, and I've just turned to Deuteronomy 18 in verse um, 22, it says, it shall be, uh, beginning in verse 19, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, in the name of uh, Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Um, So with that said, it, there was a foretelling dimension and a foretelling, and you see the prophets doing both, whether it's uh, Isaiah or Micah or Nahum or Amos, uh, they will make predictions sometimes that are hundreds of years out. Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ, and he predicts how Messiah will die and the events around it and the initial Jewish rejection and everything else and their ultimate reception. Um, and but he also gave short-term prophecies that would come true, and they did. So, that was the affirmation. So, when we come into the New Testament era, Christ ascends into heaven, and again, the scripture is not completed. And so, there were prophets who would speak direct revelation of God, and you read of this in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, the challenge, of course, was that, uh, how did you know whether or not this was a word from God? Well, the spirit of a prophet is subject to other prophets, and everything was to be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And there were certain other tests, like if a man spoke and they had false witnesses, uh, you could assume it was a false witness if indeed he said something that had gone against previous revelation. But there came a point when the canon of Scripture was finished, when the canon of Scripture was closed. And once the canon of Scripture was closed, and God was not giving new revelation, and we know that by the time we uh, come uh, to the revelation. And a sermon that you might want to listen to, this uh, caller, where I deal with it in great detail for about an hour long, it's uh, the sermon I preached in Revelation 22, uh, 18, and 19, where Jesus said, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of uh, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, showing that he's not a true believer, and from the holy city which were written in this book. So I go through this whole issue of how did God close the canon of Scripture, why it is that we... I can't get direct text messages from God like Beth Moore does, like Sarah Young does in Jesus Calling. And God said to me, and they're quoting God verbatim, and why that is dangerous, why that is cultish, why that is what is the genesis of virtually every cult that has started in the history of the church. They have some new vision, new book, new revelation, new dream— it goes beyond the measuring rod which is what the word canon means from the latin it's a measuring stick it goes beyond the measuring stick of scripture so we have a completed canon so i spent an hour just on that issue so i would direct this caller to revelation 22 uh, 18 and 19 go to search and you can listen to the entire message good question really good question let's go to the next one all
0: right we've got faye from springfield georgia on the line thanks for holding good morning you're on the bible line
2: Good morning. Thank Hi. you for your ministry, Dr. Brody.
0: Well, th- uh, th- thank so enjoy you, Fay.
2: Enthusiasm, your knowledge, and just praise God for your ministry and your church's ministry. My question this morning is from First Peter four seventeen. Okay. Lord, so it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with a, us first. That will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. Is the household of God the church?
1: That's a great question, and yes, it is. It's it's one of the uh, pictures, one of the figures that God uses to describe His people. So yes, the household of faith, the household of God, is indeed the church, the body of Christ. And God gives some really, you know, solemn words here that you know, we would we would be very wise to pay close attention to because I, I think people today sometimes under the auspices of the love of God think that they don't really need to uh fear God any any longer. And so um that's not true. There is a sense in which first John says perfect love casts out all fear because fear involves punishment. So there's not a sense that we have to fear like Um, you know, a a cringing servant who's going to be beaten up by his master, some unjust person. Um, But it is, uh, uh, there is a fear of God that we are to to, to express. So it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not, referring to unbelievers, those who do not obey the gospel? And there's a, a sense in which There is a a submission uh, that comes to the hearing of the gospel. The word obey here, interestingly, is the same word that uh, Paul uses in his letter to the church at Thessalonica when he says, the Lord Jesus, I'm just doing this out of memory, shall be revealed with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He'll deal out retribution to those who don't know God, to those who do not hear it. Same word, obey. And it's a Greek word that means to listen under. So there's a submission that the gospel is to bring. Sometimes we call it repentance and so forth. But then the next verse, which is really the more difficult verse, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? So the argument is clear. If God's people are saved with great difficulty— then what will be the final outcome of the loss? So when, we, when he says with difficulty, he's not suggesting that we can lose our salvation because Peter affirms the, already in this epistle the eternal security of the believer. For that matter, is he suggesting that God struggles to save us, that you know, God somehow is weak in the process of securing us? Uh, no, Peter is writing, if you remember, to people who are suffering. And he is reaffirming this truth throughout the book. It's a major theme in 1 Peter. Paul said when he met a group of disciples in Acts 14, he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Peter is just reminding us in this verse that God is going to judge all things, and his judgment begins with his own. And if his judgment brings his children into earth, earthly suffering, as it does sometimes— then what will be the outcome of the lost? In his quotation here, if you are using the New American Standard, uh, you will see that it changes uh, to all capital letters, which tells you that it's a quotation if you go out in the margin from the book of Proverbs. And so when we suffer as Christians, we're blessed. uh, We're not looking forward to the wrath of God. God's not weak. We're eternally secure But judgment, evaluation is to begin with the household of faith. And I think those are really sobering words for the day that we live in, because we live in a day of um, flippant Christianity. I'm sure there are many that are filling our churches that are not converted. But I also know that because Christ spoke of it, that as we move to the end of the age, that men's hearts will grow cold. And with that, um, Christians, we're partly responsible for that. We're partly responsible for the lawlessness and the coldness of heart for the simple reason that we're not bright lights and we're not really salty salt. And uh, when the church becomes weak, sin reigns. And so I can't control the whole world. I can't control the whole country. I can't control the whole state. I can't control the whole county I live in. But I know there's one person's heart that I can control, and that's my own. And as believers, we are to um, make sure our hearts are clean and clear that we're walking in holiness with the Lord.
0: All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Sarah from Trumbull, Connecticut writes, My 21-year-old daughter seems to be disinterested in reading her Bible and going to church. As a mother, it's incredibly heartbreaking to witness. I've been advised not to speak to her about these matters, that it's up to God to draw her near, and I must trust him to do so. She has a beautiful heart, and I thank the Lord every day for the gift he's given me. I'm truly honored that he's entrusted me to raise his daughter, but I feel I'm failing as a parent if I don't speak up. I often hear you speak about the characteristics of a true, spirit, uh, sp- true spirit-led Christian, and I just wonder if she has truly surrendered, but I guess I can say that about myself from time to time. I trust your wise biblical counsel, and thank you in advance for your ministry.
1: Well, I know uh, this has got to be a heartbreak to you because you love your children uh, just beyond description if you're a healthy person, and you obviously are, and so your heart's broken for uh, just the lack of uh, passion and zeal that your daughter should have for the things of God. So it means one of two things, and sometimes we don't always want to admit the second option because sometimes mentally it's too difficult but sometimes it's the most spiritually um, replete option that we should embrace. Um, There's one of two options. Either A, your daughter is not really saved, or B, she is saved and she's out of fellowship with God. So those are the two options that you're looking at. And I think you've already, by the way you've uh, written this question, uh, entertain the possibility that maybe maybe she 's not saved, you know the grace of God that brings us salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live holy and righteously in this present age. So the grace of God that has appeared for all men uh, teaches us and he changes from all to us in Titus two because now he's speaking of believers, it teaches us who have believed and embraced that grace to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously. And so if it's not teaching us, it may be that we've not had an encounter with that grace. And so the general principle in the New Testament is that when a person has met the Lord Jesus, their life changes, and if their life hasn't changed, then they may have good reason to doubt. You know, there's a verse in First John chapter 5 where... Uh, he, he makes this statement, 1 John 5, 13, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a confidence which we—so so, so there, there's there's a very pointed statement. You want to know that you have eternal life? Well, he just said in the testimony, the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. It's not something we earn or merit. It's given by grace. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. In other words, there's no middle position. You either have Christ or you don't. You're either saved or you're not. You can't be halfway saved, three-quarters of the way saved. So these things, what things? The things that he has delineated in the book of First John. In other words, he is dealing with what we call pre-Gnosticism. And the Gnostics uh, come into full-blown false teaching uh, some years to follow after John writes this epistle, but the word gnosis in Greek means knowledge. And so the Gnostics basically argued, among other heresies, is that you can have a knowledge of truth that you embrace, but it doesn't necessarily have to change your life. And so, one of the things that John does is he goes through a number of different uh, aspects of someone who's genuinely believed. By this, we know we've passed out of death into life, that we love the brethren. Oh, so that's a mark of conversion that I've passed from being lost out of death, because I'm dead in my trespasses and sins before I'm saved, into life born again by the fact that I love the brethren. So, if I don't love the brethren, I don't have one of the affirmations that John gives of a born-again person. And so these things—and by the way, I'm doing a series on Wednesday nights, so this might be a good commercial. Uh, it's called Basic Discipleship. It's our discovery class, but because of COVID, you know, we're forced not to be able to have our class that is A, for new Christians, B, for people who have been Christians maybe for decades but never discipled, and C— mature Christians who want to know how to disciple someone else. Uh, If I ask this caller, do you believe in the doctrine of eternal security? I'm sure she would say, well, yes. Well, can you show me five verses that deal with eternal security? Or can you uh, give me some texts of Scripture that deal with what we might call pseudo or phony salvation, people who think they're saved but really are not? So when he's writing these things that you might know, He's not dealing with people who are you know, struggling with assurance of salvation, and he's trying to boost them up so that they can have assurance. That's not the case at all. It's just the opposite. He's dealing with people who might have a false assurance, and he wants to underscore, here's how you can have a true and genuine assurance. If these things that I have delineated, and I'm going to cover these, by the way. Um, in fact, we'll, we'll, be on this, uh, we'll be in this section on Wednesday night. So the first topic is eternal security and assurance of salvation. And we are it usually takes three weeks, and I think we'll finish it this week. Sometimes it takes four weeks to go through that first session in this 45, 55, 60-week course. It just is different every time it's taught. Uh, so either A, your daughter's not saved, or B, she is saved, but she's out of fellowship with God. Let, let's let be very clear here. Uh, the Scripture teaches that if someone is in fellowship with God, they love the brethren. And if we don't love the brethren, then we're really not in fellowship with God, and we may not be in relationship with God. So relationship deals with uh, what happens when we're born again and we're imputed uh, the righteousness of Christ. Uh, that's a relationship that's eternal, that can never be broken. But fellowship is our closeness to the Lord. And it's possible to get out of fellowship with God. You can't sever the relationship. You can sever the fellowship. And again, at at the least, uh, your daughter is out of fellowship at the most. She's never been saved. So should you have a conversation with her? Of course. I mean, you love her. It's Samuel uh, should have, um, well, I won't go there right now because it will take too long. But let me just say, you should have a conversation with your daughter. And the only way you shouldn't, if she says, Mom, I don't want to talk about it, do not talk to me about it, then you might say, well, um, write her a letter because it's hard not to read a letter that someone sends you. And just to say, I'm here, you obviously don't want to talk about it, but I have a biblical responsibility because someday as your mother Uh, I, and I'm your mother, you know, in this life, and I may be 90 and you may be 60, but I'm still your mother. And I'm going to say what God calls me to do as a parent, because I care about your soul. And if you're uh, at some point in your life, you want to discuss this topic further, I'm available here, but you want to plant in your daughter's mind, that at the very least she is disobedient to God because she's forsaking the assembling together of the brethren. You say, well, everybody is right now in COVID. Not really. Uh, The scripture is clear. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today. That's in Hebrews 3, the same book that tells us not to forsake our assembling together later on in Hebrews 10. So there's an assumption in the New Testament That on a regular, consistent basis, we are involved in the lives of other believers. It might be with an email. It might be with a phone call. It might be with a Zoom call, a FaceTime call. There are ways in which we can stay in touch with God's people. And in this day of technology, people have the opportunity to uh, fellowship via live stream. Is that the ideal? No. And by the way, if you have just tuned in, we've just reopened. And we are going to actually have, we didn't think we would on Sunday, but we'll actually meet tomorrow night, Wednesday night as well. Uh, No children's programs, no nurseries. um, And we'll open up the uh, fellowship hall that will seat hundreds of people as well uh, for those with small children if you want to participate and feel like it might be difficult. So we are open Wednesday night. We are open Sunday morning. Some people's immune system is not what it needs to be, and they can still live stream at nine fifteen or 11. All right, that's, that's a great question. I hope that will help you. Um, so you want um, your daughter to know that at the least she's disobedient. She's doing what God says not to do, and she'll have regrets. And when people are out of fellowship and disobedient, they make decisions that they shouldn't make. So she ends up falling in love with some guy and ends up marrying him and a person maybe that God didn't want them to marry. Why? Because she was out of fellowship with God. She didn't have the Spirit's direction in her life, and she had retaken the throne of her life. And there's a message I have that addresses this. It's called, Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? And it's a message that I will be addressing in this series on basic discipleships, which, again, this person from Connecticut who's writing can live stream Wednesdays at 630. Great question. Let's go to the next one.
0: Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Christy would like your opinion on the popular Chick tract publication for Getting Out the Gospel. Do you have any suggestions of a good tract? And uh, Christy's family would like to be a witness in this way. Thank you.
1: Well, um, the Chick tracks are really kind of interesting, Um, and some of them maybe have not been written in a healthy fashion. I had a friend who met Mr. Chick, and that was maybe 10 years ago, and he was in his 80s, so I don't know for sure, but my my guess is he's in heaven. He was a believer, um, but sometimes the way he presented truth wasn't always – in the most sensitive way. And you've got to understand, he wrote hundreds and hundreds of tracks, and he was the personal author of them all. Now, I don't know uh, who's still writing them because that ministry is going on. If they're making new ones, if he has a son or some associate that continues to write the tracks, But, for instance, I remember um, reading the cover of one. It's called The Gay Blade, and this was his attack on, you know, homosexuality. And he had a lot of, you know, stereotypes that uh, may be uh, true and expressive of some people in a gay lifestyle, but it was more half making fun of them while at the same time uh, just hammering home, you know, what God said about the lifestyle of homosexuality. Well, it may be funny until your child is the one who's struggling with homosexuality. And your child is the one who has um, maybe even some of the stereotypic gay manifestations, and then it's not really funny anymore. And you want to, if you've got a child who's homosexual, you you want to reach that child for Christ, and you want to do it in a way that's compassionate and loving and at the same time, doesn't compromise the truth. So sometimes I think uh, the chick tracks. Don't have that balance. Um, By the way, if you're looking for a helpful track, uh, I've written one. It's Would You Like to Know God Is Your Friend? And we actually give them out for free if the person requesting them at Search the Scriptures will pay the uh, postage and handling. Uh, Handling, there's no, it's just postage. We don't even charge you for the handling, per se. The person who has to go to the post office and wrap them up in a box. They're free. And we'll send them out 50 at a time uh, to someone for free. But you have to pay the postage. Why? Because we don't want you to just call our number because they cost about 35 cents each to print. And us to send you that free tract. And then you just have it sit on a shelf and do zero with it. So we want you to have a little skin in the game. And it's a great tract. It goes through, I think, a holistic presentation of the gospel. About 40 years ago, uh, someone came up with the expression of an Acts 2 versus an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel, where an Acts 2 presentation was the idea that you have a biblical knowledge or foundation of some type, and that biblical knowledge is presumed upon. And so the tracks that I, I began to use as a new Christian when I came to Christ in the 1970s were really Acts 2 presentations, like the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. John 10.10, 10, John 3.16, that's how it started. But there was a certain presupposition that most Americans at that time had some at least basic knowledge of the Bible. That's no longer true. And so when you're dealing with someone 18 to thirty. Um, the ignorance is just profound. Uh, I I meet sometimes young Marines who come to our church, and I'll ask them, well, do you know uh, whether or not Adam ate the fruit? And he says, no, I don't really know that story in the Bible. And you're thinking, you got to be kidding me, but that's just where our culture is, because we have this generation that has not been raised up in the church with total biblical ignorance. So in Acts 17 presentation of the gospel, Acts 2, Paul uh, Peter is dealing with Jewish people. He's quoting Scripture, assumes they know the Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. Acts 17, he's also dealing to lost people. Paul is, and he assumes they have really no knowledge of Scripture. And so it's a broader presentation, and I think that's what we really need today. And so that's what I do in the booklet, Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend? And when they come to the last page, if they get that far— they can also watch it online at searchthescriptures.org. So, you know, you can always give it to a person and say, hey, would you uh, read this and tell me what you think? Uh, people tend to be less turned off if you ask them for their opinion. Or if you send someone who's really interested, hey, would you take this booklet and there's a verbal presentation? that you can follow along online with this booklet. It's right here in the back. Here's the website, and this is what you click on. And uh, tell me what you think. Or you might say, hey, can I take you through this booklet? A lot of evangelistic methodologies are done by people with the gift of evangelism for people with the gift of evangelism. And really, people with the gift of evangelism are supposed to equip those who don't have that gift. And so that's really what I'm trying to do uh, with this tract, such that if you just read it and you didn't even add any commentary to it, uh, because what I do is I take the verses and I give brief commentary throughout the booklet within the biblical context. So, for instance, when we quote John 14, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through the Son, I give some explanation as to why Jesus can claim to be the only way to God. And I'll make a brief statement in there. He's the only one who could die for our sin because he was the only sinless person. And the way we know that he was the only sinless person who could die for us was the fact that he was raised from the dead. So I give explanation throughout. So if you just started there, hey, can I read this to you? And you say, well, I'm afraid they're going to ask a question I can't answer. Well, that's great. That's how you grow. And you can always say, you know, um, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And so the question you have, I'm sure it's been asked millions of times, but I'm not sure how to answer it. But I'll tell you what, I will personally research it and get back with you on it. All right. So some questions, too, that unbelievers will ask are what I call smoke screens. They're not really sincere questions. They're just trying to throw you off because they want a reason not to believe. But some questions that unbelievers ask really come from sincere and searching hearts, and we want to be able to respond. So appreciate that question. Thank you so much. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All
0: right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Yes. Good morning, gentlemen. I got a question. You know, all this stuff going on about people saying about racism, about the Confederate flag. And all the old presidents or generals that were Confederate. But what that got to do with racism, because if the people are so racist against them, they, they, then they're no good, at, As good, uh, no, any, they're not any better than the guys who supposedly were racist back then or the Confederate flag. So the, the real issue, not so much the Confederate flag, the real issue is the, the wicked heart of man. That's the real issue, not that's a symbol of a flag or, uh, or people that did in the past. You know, they're yeah. not going to change anything. So that they, then by being attacking the Confederate or those statues, all this stuff is going on. they're, they're not any better than 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 the, than the supposedly dumb people. Who they said they're racist or all that stuff going on. So what do you think about that?
1: Well, it, it's a fair question and and it's a good question. And you know, right now, for instance, there's been in place uh, for many years. It goes back to when Beasley was the governor of the state and. People wanted the flag taken off the top of the state house, and actually, most people didn't pay it any attention up there. It went down on the ground, uh, and it got a lot more uh, visibility. Um, there went into play what was called the Heritage Act in South Carolina, and the Heritage Act basically uh, preserves uh, statues and so forth. People, cities, and local municipalities can't just take them down. Uh, you have to. Uh, get permission through the legislative process of the state of South Carolina to remove a statue. And there's a lot of ignorance in our, in our country. Um, uh, this movement uh, recently tore down a statue, and it was actually of an abolitionist. And they obviously didn't know what they were doing. Oh, let's just tear down a statue. And, you know, there are obviously a lot of statues sometimes to honor people. Uh, that maybe shouldn't have been honored to begin with. Uh, There's, uh, again, Clemson University, at least they're recognizing the law here because they're breaking the law in other areas. For instance, they are required as an institution of higher learning to teach the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and the Declaration of Independence, and they're not. Uh, They're defiantly breaking the law. Why? Because they don't want this new generation to read the Constitution. There's a liberal agenda there. And USC is also doing the same thing, breaking the law defiantly in all of their subsidiaries across the state. And my son, by the way, was just interviewed and wrote a major article for a major conservative uh, institution. And if you follow me on Twitter, I Twittered out that. Uh, interview link, if it's of any interest to you. But what I'm trying to say is uh, Clemson University, for instance, wants to rename Tillman Hall. Now, Tillman Hall, if you've ever been to the Clemson uh, campus, is that like magnificent, beautiful building. It's for the School of Education. I know that because my daughter's a Clemson graduate and she was a part of the School of Education. and, And yet Tillman was, he was a defiant racist. He was not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. So they, 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 they want to, you know, rename the building and since it's historically uh, related they can't just, you know, do it. Um, well, maybe they should rename Clemson University because Thomas Clemson was also a slave owner. So you know, it, it's just a game they're playing. They, they want to look, you know, really fine and like they really care about people. And so, you know, well, then rename Clemson because that guy was a slave owner. And people say, well, the founding fathers were slave owners. Well, some of them were. But you name me one, one, just one founding father who owned slaves, who before the end of his life did not say it was wrong. Uh, people want to t- tear down the Jefferson Memorial. Jefferson had a very extended discourse in the original Declaration of Independence that was anti-slavery, but he was trying to get it signed by the 13 colonies, and there were two states who said, we will not sign it if these anti-slavery editions uh, are here in the Declaration of Independence. And the two states, of course, were North and South Carolina. So, you know, there's just profound ignorance in our culture. So let's tear down all the statues of George Washington. Well, George Washington, when he was 10 years old, his father died and left him 10 slaves. He inherited these slaves. And, of course, before the end of his life, he fought against slavery and freed all of his slaves. So, you again, you name me just one founding father who own slaves, and 30 of the 59 did, who did not renounce the position that they had held before they died. There isn't one. Um, so do we have a sordid history? Of course we do. Every nation in the world does. And sometimes you can teach from error. So maybe there should be a, a plaque at the bottom of some Confederate statue saying, you know, this man held this position. And then you can really, but to erase your history can be very foolish because we can learn from the mistakes that people who went before us made. That's what God does in First Corinthians 10. He records biblical history for Israel and all the dumb things that they did. And he says, hey, listen, I'm writing this for your instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So there's no end to what you might tear down and what you might do, and you're never consistent enough. Can I see renaming Tillman Hall? Sure. Uh, I just want them to go through the right procedure. Why? Because we live in a republic. And so you have representatives up in the South Carolina Senate and House who represent you, and if they want to rename Tillman Hall, then you have a right to let your senator and your representative up there in Columbia know how you feel and if they want to be reelected because they're supposed to represent their constituency, then they're going to uh vote accordingly and If the majority of the state says no, we, we shouldn't tear it down. Oh, you say that's systemic racism, not necessarily by any stretch. it 's like with the police there's eight hundred thousand police officers in the United States. Are you telling me they're all racist i I, I don 't think so um So it's a good question that you raise, and as Christians, we need to be sensitive. Let let me go to the flag issue here for a second, because when uh, Governor Beasley, who's a born-again committed Christian, uh, chose not to take the flag down, or he he said, he said, I'm running on the basis that I will not take the flag down, and eventually came down. So I remember, for instance, uh, we uh, had—this was a question in the discovery class, which I was teaching back then in the 90s on Sunday morning, and someone, a new Christian, said, well, should we as Christians, you know, uh, have a Confederate flag or whatever? And I said, well, the Bible says we're to be sensitive one to another. And I said, you know, at the time, Beaufort County was 38% African American. It's now 18% African American— but the Hispanic side has grown dramatically. And so we're still in the same numbers in terms of two major minority groups. And I said, God's called us to, to reach the community for Christ. And we have, and that's reflective. We have a very unusual church. <coughs> it is a broad stream of people from different racial, different countries and so forth. Um, and God has just given us a love for one another. And that's what the Spirit of God does. The Holy Spirit is poured out in your heart, and you have a compassion and a care for other people. And so I said to him, you know, as a matter of principle, one, you don't want to be a stumbling block, even if you don't see the Confederate flag as wrapped up in race, which I think might be difficult to argue. But even if you don't see it as that, you do have a responsibility, to be sensitive to your brother, not to call him, cause him to stumble, and you have a responsibility to be all things to all men. So I said to him, I said, we have a deacon in our church who had the Confederate flag on the front of his car. He was a deacon I inherited uh, when I came, and I asked him to take it off. I said, I think it's a stumbling block to brothers in Christ, and I think it's a stumbling block if an African-American drives into our parking lot and they see some car or multiple cars, say, even, but he was the only one who had it with a Confederate flag on it, and so they're going to drive out, and we're going to miss the opportunity to preach the gospel because of the stupid license plate you have on the front. Take it off if you want to be a deacon. And he took it off, and I was grateful for the fact that he did. So there is a sensitivity here, but there can also be, like, extreme measures that are being done because of just pure ignorance, and there is a balance here where we can teach from error, and we need to be able to do that as well. Good question. Let's go to the next one.
0: 843 If you have a question on today's Bible line, and you mentioned something about the police, and sure enough, we have a question. Is it biblical to defund
1: the police? Well, that's a Great question. When I did, and I don't think the numbers have changed because it's only been a couple of years ago, I did a sermon on God, guns, and um, government. God, guns, and government. And I did it from Romans chapter 13. Let me just uh, read that text. It's an interesting uh, passage of scripture because it speaks of the believer's responsibility uh, to government. And remember who's in charge at this point? Nero who was a wicked, evil man who hated Christians. In fact, under the Neronian persecutions, because he wanted to clean up Rome and make everything look sparkly new, he had the slums burned. And when there was a revolt, he ended up blaming the Christians. They said, well, he did it. They did it. And in order to make them examples, he took believers that he found, and he dipped them in oil, and he made them human torches in his garden. And it's under this kind of government that the Apostle Paul writes, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, government, police officers, armies, because that's really the nature of government primarily, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who uh, practices it. So no doubt we need police reform. Uh, No one would debate that. And what happened um, to George Floyd was despicable. It's a national disgrace. It's heartbreaking. And if you don't see it that way, you've got a real problem. But we will always, uh, as long as we have sinful people who have physical authority, which police do, that God gives to the police and to the military. They shall not bear the sword for nothing. They don't carry a marshmallow to beat you with. They carry a gun. They carry the sword, so to speak. We need police, and we need police reform. It's uh, I think it's ignorant. It's naive. It's against Scripture, though, to defund the police, especially in an environment of chaos that we're living in right now. I mean, dismantling the police or defunding the police would be like dismantling the fire department during the season of wildflow f- fires or to say, well, we've got some bad cops. Well, let's get rid of all the medical personnel because all the medical personnel treating um, COVID patients are not a hundred percent successful. So let's get rid of them. I mean, that's just beyond stupid. And so it's sad because these riots that are going on in our country, a lot of people are being hurt, a lot of property is being stolen and damaged, and and none of that is right. That's all wrong. Uh, You you have no right to burn down buildings and to break shops, and and a lot of the peoples whose businesses in Minneapolis were destroyed were African-American people. They're being robbed and murdered as well, and they need the police force to protect them. And, you know, why don't we say what happened the weekend before last in Chicago where 18 black people were shot by black people? We need protection because some of the people who were shot were just innocent, innocent people. So we need to have police that's accountable, that's responsible. And I heard some guy on the news saying it's Republicans' fault in Minneapolis and it's, you know, their problem. And and I'm thinking – Well, they've had a Democrat uh, mayor since 1931 without a single exception. So they've had some opportunity to uh, change things. But to call to defund the police, I think, is only to make the public at large insecure and unsafe. And if you've been following anything on the news, you know that ammunition sales – and gun sales have gone through the roof. They sold one point eight million guns in the last thirty days. So people are thinking, well, if the police aren't going to protect me, then I'm going to protect myself. And no organization, whether it's preachers or lawyers or police or firefighters, are gonna have a hundred percent success rate. Right. But you have to deal with those people who abuse their badge and they have to be held accountable. But look, if we run down the police constantly, nobody's going to want to become a police officer. I mean, I wouldn't want to be. Um, You know, we need good people who will protect us. And if you don't think that, then you're just naive over the nature of man and what he is really like. I mean, when you defund the one blue line between you and anarchy, you're inviting absolute chaos into the culture. So let's defund the police. I heard one guy on CNN, which is not known for necessarily being conservative, and he said that 90% of the monies that go to police department is totally for personnel. So there's not a lot of waste in the budget is all I'm saying. So, yeah, let's dial 911 and you've seen the, you know, the little mock-ups and, you know, push one if you want a social worker, you know. Push, too, if you want someone to hold your hand while your wife bleeds to death. Uh, You get a live person. I'm sorry, we're an hour to two hours out before we can get a police officer out there to your house that's being robbed because we are so short on personnel. So it's not smart, some of the things that people are saying. It dismisses what God says is the role of government. The role of government is not to provide you with a job or an education or you know, a free lunch program or any other of the millions of benefits that they give to us. The primary role of government is to repress evil and to praise good. And God acknowledges that there's a need for that, that uh, in certainly when again, it's abused, it's just like you personally can kill someone that you shouldn't kill because your life is not being threatened and God holds you responsible for murder. And again, I cover that in my sermon on God's guns and government. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, that might be a good biblical foundation that will help you to think through clearly on this issue. Let's go to the next caller. I think someone's waiting.
0: Indeed, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Hi, good morning. I have a... Quick comment on a prior call and then a question for you, Pastor Brogy. Um, In regards to the Confederate statues and the history, you know, I think a big part of the problem in our culture and our American society is we don't teach history anymore, and we don't teach it well. And I remember reading Alexander Sotchenekin said the first step a tyrant takes when he wants to enslave his people into tyranny or tyranny, rather, is to make people forget their own history. Yes. And I think if this is the path we keep going down, we're just going to see uh, uh, lots and lots of disasters. So, you know, and in the public schools, they don't do it well anymore, and we're just forgetting it, not only our nation's history, but even church history. Which is, we need to teach it more, and we need to do a better job of it.
1: Boy, I, so, I, I say sure amen to you. I, I agree with you our, on that.
2: Boy, I get kind of personal. Who, who are some of your favorite historians to read that— you could recommend people. Well, to Toynbee's uh, five-volume volume work you know, on America
1: the history, yeah. Um, Toynbee's five-volume work on the history of the church would be a superb read. It's not an easy read, but it's very, very well done. Uh, there is a book for maybe someone who's not, you know, that dedicated to reading church history uh, on the history of Christianity uh, in America. And it was put out by Erdman's press. And unfortunately it's not in print right now, but if you, uh, just Google it at Amazon or at half.com, it's called Erdman's handbook to history of Christianity. Uh, Dowley was the general editor and it's a superb work. Um, we just brought it up here, and it is $12.95 for a hardcover used copy. Uh, it was um, selling new at one time for, for $60. Very, very well done, which would give you an overall grasp of, uh, of of the history of the church. You're you're right. This is why, you know, I, I have a son who just graduated from... Antonin Scalia School of Law a couple weeks ago, and he spent seven years, uh, became aware of an issue while he was at USC that they are required by law to teach the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the Federalist Papers, which were kind of a commentary on how the early authors of those documents understood and interpreted them. And they use the Idea of original intent, but Clemson and USC and all these public four-year colleges are just defiantly breaking the law, and they don't care. Uh, they say, "Well, it will cost too much money uh, to start this course over," and so. But we're 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 obeying the spirit of the law, and that um, once a year on Constitution Day, we pass out free pocket constitutions to any student who wants them that's like saying well the way we teach chemistry is we pass out copies of the periodic table it's just ridiculous and so here's what's happening is we have this whole generation that is being raised who's never ever even read the constitution and i fear that maybe even many listening to me today have never ever read the constitution of the united states and if we're ignorant of our history and on what basis we're founded then you're right. Tyranny can easily step in and take over, and that's really what we're seeing. I mean, why is it that so many young people really want to uh, embrace a Bernie Sanders who's a hardcore socialist? He wants to undermine and destroy the Constitution of the United States that he raises his right hand to defend. It's because they're ignorant. They have no earthly idea of the form of government that we enjoy. Uh, if you're raising children in the home, uh, we had a, a, a paperback series called The History of Us. It's often nicknamed The History of U.S. And it's an excellent, I think it was in seven paperback volumes, and all of our children went through that. And that's a, just a good, solid history of America. It's not a revisionist uh, view of history and what happened, you know. So, you know, now a child in third grade. You know, teaches that, um, you know, the people who came to our country oppressed the Indians and uh, they didn't give thanks to God at the first Thanksgiving. They give thanks to Mother Nature and just, I mean, they rewrite everything. And it's a really distorted view of what has happened. And that's why, you know, some African-American people tore down a statue of an abolitionist who defended their right to freedom recently. Why? Because people across America, and it wasn't just black people, it was white people too, who tore down that statue. Why? Because they have no idea what their history is about. And so we we need to be in tune with these things. Well, I don't think I want to take another question because we're down to our last minute or so, but I will say that uh, next Sunday at 9, 15, and 11, we would welcome you to Community Bible Church. Uh, we are practicing social distancing uh, in our seating. And otherwise, we, we don't have mask police, but we do ask you to wear a mask until you get to your seat. Uh, just out of respect for people who maybe are older and to express love to them because we don't want them to get sick. Older people have more challenge recovering and some who do recover uh, end up with either mild, medium or severe permanent lung damage from this uh, COVID virus. Uh, So we do ask, too, that you register online. We have our 1,800-seat auditorium, our 800-seat auditorium, and four classrooms. But when you take all the air out of the balloon, if you come in with a family of four, you've got to have three seats on either side. If you come in with a family of one, you've got to have three seats on either side. So we basically only have 675 seats of service. So you would need to register online, and uh, there's plenty of room right now. Uh, but we invite you to come, and we invite you to come tomorrow night at 6.30 as we do our series on basic discipleship. Thanks for being with us today for The Bible Line. Have a great day.